lovers, welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to the debut episode of Get Real's Raw Truth miniseries. RAW is an acronym for Reproducibility and Animal Welfare. Our discussions in these episodes will focus on how reliable research findings require rigorous animal welfare practices. The U.S. government spends over $30 billion a year on biomedical research, and about half of the studies published are questionable because they can't be replicated. The research community has been grappling with this issue for years, attributing it to insufficient rigor and study design, statistical bias, and a lack of full transparency in scientific publications. In other words, about $15 billion of taxpayer money is wasted each year because of sloppy science and subjective reporting by researchers who are under a tremendous amount of pressure to publish data to keep their funding and their jobs. It's a cultural quagmire in which quantity is emphasized over quality, and we need to fix it. Yes, it's an unfathomable waste of money, time, and resources. But above all else, it's an unforgivable waste of animal lives. And for me, what our animals experience for our well-being will always matter more than anyone's money or time. Now, I'm super proud of the research community for calling this crisis out directly and publicly. Because of their efforts, new recommendations for study design and reporting are in place to help us get things back on track. But these corrections don't go deep enough because they don't address the most central cause of the issue. Our data come from animals. Sloppy practices related to their care and experiences will always be the primary cause of inconsistent findings across studies because reproducible science and animal welfare are two sides of the same coin. So what are we missing when it comes to how we care for research animals? And how do we do better? Joining us today to break the seal on these discussions is Dr. Jeremy Turner, Chief Scientific Officer of Turner Scientific and a hearing scientist who has a lot to say about the impact of noise and vibration on our research animals. Welcome to the Raw Truth series of Get Real, Dr. Turner. We appreciate you joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Cindy. Uh, we in the research field are in the midst of what we're calling a reproducibility crisis. And basically what that means for our listeners is about 50% of the data that is produced um, is questionable because other people can't reproduce it. And the research community has attempted to correct that through a, a variety of different means, right? They are uh, looking at more rigorous, transparent reporting using the ARRIVE guidelines. Uh, the PREPARE guidelines are around to help people create more rigorous study designs. Um, and I think all of those things are helpful. But at the end of the day, all of our data comes from our animals. And I feel like if we're really going to address the reproducibility crisis, we need to start looking at what these animals themselves are experiencing, because if their physiology changes, um, then the information that comes from them will be skewed. And so you are an expert in audition and uh, also vibration, and particularly your niche, which is very relevant here, applies to the species we work with in research. You are really the first person I've ever spoken to that addresses what it is we need to know directly. 
So maybe you can describe how noise and vibration contribute to this crisis. Yeah, this area is, is um, I think, just ripe for contributions to this reproducibility crisis because ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, the vast majority of our work is done with mice and rats and some other species, right, that are biologically uh, driven to respond to noise and vibration and not the light cues that we humans use. So, you know, in our animal facilities, as an example, we humans walk into them and we, we look at them with our eyes because that's, that's how we survey our world. That's how we look for threats. That's how we kind of monitor for variability. But we don't recognize that for a mouse, a nocturnal tunnel dwelling animal, sound is an absolutely essential cue for its survival. And they communicate with one another. Their pro-social interactions, you know, are acoustic in nature often. And their threat warnings that they convey to one another are often acoustic in nature. So, you know, they use sound very aggressively to communicate with one another and to spread concerns. Uh, and vibration, similarly, a vibration for a mouse or a rat tells them something's going to eat them. And, you know, if your office is vibrating a little bit or your bed is vibrating a little bit, you would do something about it, right? But in our animal facility spaces, we tend not to measure these things. It's just not been done. And so uh, we're largely ignoring these absolutely essential variables that are really, really critical to the daily survival and predictability of the world for our mice and our rats. And by not measuring them, we're functionally ignoring the contributions that they make to our work. And there's huge variability. We've surveyed many, many dozens of facilities around the world. And you can imagine that when you never measure something, how eye-opening it can be when you start measuring. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the rooms are filled with sources of ultrasonic noise that we don't hear and vibrations that we don't feel. You know, it, the lights emit some ultrasound, the computers, the hoods, the blower motors, the HVAC system, all of these things are kind of unique fingerprints for every animal room. And you know, we shouldn't be surprised then when we have a hard time reproducing a study, when we move our lab from Houston to Boston, for example, even from one lab vivarium room to another in the same facility, we see massive variability. So again, we're not measuring these things. And so uh, we think that's the first solution is to actually understand and report on what these variables are looking like in our animal care spaces. Yeah. What kind of an impact does noise and vibration actually have on rodents? Well, fundamentally, the concerning impact is that we worry that it will activate stress pathways. And we know from lots of research across really all of the species that we use in our biomedical research and behavioral work, as well as research with humans, we know that activation of corticosteroid pathways alters virtually every biological and behavioral system that we have. And, you know, an arousing stimulus, whether it's a sound that's coming from a computer or a light, a strong vibratory event, um, these signals can elevate stress hormones for hours afterwards. And that can change the animal's responsiveness to a blood pressure medicine that you're giving them that you might be testing in the afternoon. Maybe you're developing a new, uh, a new medication for anxiety, for example. And by not understanding what these animals are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis, what might be arousing them, it's like a layer of variability that we just throw on top of all of the research studies we do. And of course, in a perfect world, we scientists, you know, we manipulate something. We, we give one group a placebo, we give another group a treatment, and we want to see if there's a difference between them afterwards, right? And, and when you have this additional layer of variability, it just makes noise in the system. So we may have to use more animals than we would normally have to use to see the effect. 
it, it is essentially something that we don't tend to report on in the studies that we publish. It's very, very rare for scientific papers to describe the animal vivarium spaces where the animals are held. We scientists tend to view the animal facility housing spaces as kind of like a hotel, you know. So we give our mice and our rats to the veterinary staff to take care of the animals, and they do a beautiful job of it, right? And we almost like we check them out of the hotel, and we bring them to our lab down the hall or upstairs or something, and we, you know, we give them a, a medicine to see if it lowers anxiety. We see if it, you know, helps with multiple sclerosis or, you know, lowers the developmental pattern of a, a cancerous tumor. Then we, we check them back into the hotel, not realizing that 23 out of every 24 hours of the day, they're in that hotel. We have these stimuli in our vivarium spaces, sometimes from computers and procedure hoods and fluorescent lighting ballasts and things like that that are there constantly. And, you know, we know from the human tinnitus literature that having a relatively quiet, constant droning tone in the background in our head all the time can be arousing, it disrupts sleep. Um, and it can cause and be associated with a whole range of downstream cognitive impacts. In the olden days of animal research work, these animals were in very static environments. There were no computers around in the 60s and 70s to provide sophisticated monitoring and controls for the animal spaces. And there are today. We have very carefully controlled air delivery systems and caging systems, and that comes with it, a lot of electronics. And so these, these issues are kind of new issues. So while we've solved some problems over the last couple of decades and made the environments cleaner and safer and more uh, reproducible as it relates to air quality, we might have been, well, we have been introducing new sources of variability as we bring new electronics and sources of ultrasound and vibration in some cases into the their housing spaces. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what would it sound like to a human? So because we can't hear it, it's really hard for us to get a sense of, you know, how could this be so awful that it disrupts my sleep and it changes my physiology? And it, like, how bad could this sound be? Like, what would be an equivalent sound that we might hear that would do all those things to us? Well, Cindy, I'm such a nerd when it comes to sound that I carry with me on my phone a tone generator because when I'm giving presentations or talking to students or helping people understand what tinnitus sounds like, I can play a tone for you that sounds like uh, kind of one of the most common tinnitus experiences that people have. Let me see if I can play this um, over the microphone. So this is an 8,000 hertz tone, and this would be... It would be equivalent to probably one of those ultrasonic motion sensors going off at about 40 kilohertz. So, you know, humans hear up to 16 or 20 kilohertz, mice hear up to 80 to 120 kilohertz. So, yeah, that's annoying. It's very annoying, isn't it? So, that's 8,000 hertz. And I'm going to keep it on a second so you can be aroused by it. So, you can be, you know, um, <laughs> so you can be stressed by it. And so, you know, that that's what it's like. And, and as I'm talking to veterinarians and scientists um, about how these environmental sounds can impact animals, I, I like to play that because a lot of them will have tinnitus and they're like, oh, yeah, this, I can't sleep at night or I have to, you know, wear a noise mask or in order to ignore it. And, and so like, well, this is this is what it might be like in some of your animal spaces. So essentially what you're saying is... Um... Unwittingly, we are virtually flooding uh, over 95% of the animals we work with in research 
with noise and vibration that we can't perceive, but that they can perceive, um, that then has downstream effects, uh, whether it's related to the stress hormone cascade <laughs> uh, or lack of sleep or interrupted breeding. Um, I mean, this this is very concerning. And because the other thing you said is that from even room to room or positions in a particular room, these things can vary. So, I mean, how on earth can we ever get a semblance of standardized data from animals like this when we have absolutely no idea what kind of physiologic state they're in as a consequence of this flooding of noise and vibration that we can't perceive, right? And how can we ever do rigorous reproducible studies if we don't address this issue at the animal level? So, you know, this is really important and we have a lot of smart people in this field. Um, and I'm wondering why the research community hasn't been monitoring noise and vibration in rodent research colonies all along. So that's a complicated question with perhaps lots of answers, but ultimately there is a solution. This is not a situation where we have to stick our head in the sand and just cross our fingers. Uh, we can measure these things and we're good at doing that in science. But measurements are driven by the tools that are available. You know, we can measure temperature and humidity with great resolution, and we've done so in animal rooms for decades, right? Because for, you know, $20, you can put a sensor on the wall that's really pretty accurate, uh, reliable and valid. Uh, noise and ultrasonic noise in particular has been a historical issue because in order to hear those high-pitched sounds, you need an ultrasonic microphone. And so these these instruments, classically, there there have been a couple companies in the world that make these microphones, and they've been really expensive. And that has been a limiting factor in widespread use. So ultimately, over the last few years, we've been working hard to try to get a system together that will actually not require a PhD in acoustics to use <laughs> and, uh, and uh, sensors that are actually um, obtainable. Uh, they're not so expensive that they, they can't be purchased by facilities. So ultimately, that's where we are, like a lot of things where the technology, you know, is becoming more cost effective to actually own. Right. And this is something that you in particular have designed. I mean, this is one of the reasons I, I've asked you to join us today, because I think it's so fascinating, because in addition to developing something that is affordable, that will give you accurate information, that has to be coupled with the relevance of that information per species, right? You know, and so it's it's one thing to have a monitor like this that will tell you, okay, well, you, you have a sound in this range. But if you can't couple that with how it impacts a mouse or a rat or a monkey or a rabbit or a dog or a cat or any of the other species we work with, it's sort of useless. Um, and, and I know that the system you've designed that I'm very, very excited about addresses all of those things. Maybe, maybe you can talk about that a little bit because I think our community has an obligation to start measuring this because we can't mitigate something we can't identify. And if we don't mitigate it, then we are guiltier than anybody in the rest of science for causing the reproducibility crisis, right? So uh, maybe you can explain a little bit about how your new instrument works and what it does that really isn't available anywhere else, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So, of course, you know, scientists out there can custom write applications to, to serve their needs. And we've been doing that kind of thing for a long time for our research studies. But what we've done here is to try to take kind of the ease of use of like a handheld instrument and essentially put in filters that allow you to select the species you're dealing with. So if you want to measure what a mouse hears, a rat's hearing range, et cetera, what we do is essentially allow you to click on the species, right? So if you're in a, in a mouse space, you click on a mouse, and what it does is that it shifts the hearing range of the sensor to align with what a mouse hears. 
And if you go to a rat room next door, you can click on that button and it'll filter out everything other than what the rats hear. So we, we can actually tune this then to any species. You know, we've got, you know, 15 or 20 that are most commonly used in, in animal research from mouse through, you know, non-human primates. And ultimately it's it's a very selectable phenomenon where we just kind of get away from the, the human-centric nature of our work and begin, you know, seeing, really seeing for the first time what our animals are hearing um, and, and feeling, right? And, and that's, that's of course, super, super valuable then because then we can apply what we know about exposure to different noise levels to do some predictive work. You know, is this loud enough to cause hearing damage in this animal? Is this loud enough to just distress them? Is it loud enough to wake them from sleep? You know, so that for the first time gives us the tools that we need to make some kind of judgments about proper care. Animal welfare issues become easier to manage in this space then because you actually know what they're experiencing. We'll have a bunch of animals on this rack in the same room and the rack adjacent to it holding different animals. One may be in a chronic state of, you know, anxiety, frankly, uh, based on the vibration patterns in their background, and the other is not. And we're expecting them to respond similarly to a, a cancer therapeutic, you know, or an antibiotic. But if you don't have the measurement, you don't even have the key information you need to have a conversation. And you can't report it in your paper. And that, that's what we'd like to see, honestly. We'd like to see scientists doing a better job of reporting everything, each of these kind of extrinsic environmental variables in their vivarium spaces, including light, because way more than half of your genes are circadian driven. When you report on results in papers, whether a drug worked or not, you know, you should report on these factors. So, you know, your, your scientist colleague at another institution can say, wow, your facility vibration level is similar to mine, or your racks vibrate more. And maybe that's a factor in how I interpret this study. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and that makes perfect sense. What's the name of the instrument you've developed? It's called the Sensory Sentinel, and it's just basically logging all this information every second. It'll measure uh, noise in that particular species hearing range, frequency in that range of sensitivity of that animal, the light levels every second, temperature and humidity every second. So it, it gives us a lot of information. So noise, vibration, light, temperature, and humidity at the cage level. And I imagine you could also do this at the room level if that was valuable. Yeah, yeah, we've set this up so that it's it's modular. So you can actually have the sensors in the room. So you can, from the hallway, you can see if the lights are on without opening the door. You can see what the noise level is like. When you push a cart down the hall, you can watch it right from your office even because these are Wi-Fi enabled. So ultimately, yeah, you can put it on the door as you go in. You can have it on a cart. You can put it on a rack and in a cage itself. So yeah, it's very modular. These can be set up in a cage or in a room. And so, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. We should be reporting all of these things so that people who are doing similar work can evaluate the work done by Lab X relative to Lab Y and, and how that compares to whatever their findings are so that they can make a better, more educated estimation about what's a clear finding and what might still be, you know, really noisy. You know, you either, you either have no finding, which isn't valid because you had confounds related to the experience of the animals because of these extrinsic factors, or you have a positive finding and then send something off to drug development, which is actually also based on flawed information because of the experience of the animals related to these extrinsic factors, right? So reporting about the differences is one thing, right? But if I'm doing a study, I would like to be able to look at this instrument and also know when one of these variables, whether it's light, temp, humidity, probably especially noise and vibration, are are 
at a dangerous point because I don't want to continue a study when I know the animals are experiencing something that is really creating a problem. I, you know, I'm, I'm going into it then knowing that my animals are compromised and why would I complete the study? So the question is, have you designed it in such a way that it's user-friendly, right? It's fairly intuitive. Like I can look on there and say, okay, look, these animals are in the danger zone for vibration um, and I've got to get somebody to come in here and mitigate it so that I can continue my study because I think it's irresponsible science frankly, to continue your study once you know that the animals are in harm's way uh, as a consequence of some sort of dangerous exposure to one of these variables, right? So is it intuitive that way? Can somebody just look at it and know? Yeah, and that, that really has been the developmental challenge over the last couple of decades. How do we take these kind of sophisticated instruments that give us spectrum profiles and readouts that are really complicated and require pretty good understanding of engineering uh, to interpret? And so we, we've structured this so that um, my uh, high school freshman, my daughter, can can actually look at these plots and, and see if they exceed key thresholds and read them without having to understand all of the underlying science. So we can install these in facilities and a technician whose job is to change cages in the room and, and take care of the animals on a day-to-day -day basis. They're not scientists, typically. They don't understand the acoustics, right? But they can see that this big red line is crossed. <laughs> and, and, and of course, we can send an alert to somebody in charge saying, hey, this is out of line, right? But they can see the products of their actions. They can see that when they're changing cages or handling animals, it causes vibration. They can see that when they push a cart in the room without care, it makes way more noise than if they push it with care. You can, can see that the room door needs lubricated because there's a spike in noise every time they open and close it. So um, it, it doesn't require a sophisticated understanding to interpret the, the findings. And I think that's absolutely essential in this process because otherwise it, it's a, a niche tool that's really just for us hearing scientists to kind of know what it means, right? Yeah, that's the beauty of it, that the, the application just in general across laboratory animal science and research, um, you have your sensory sentinel, you can tune it for whatever species uh, you're interested in, right, that, that's in the room. You can get second-by-second uh, second data about light, temp, humidity, noise, and vibration. That's getting logged somewhere. Thresholds are built in for what's dangerous, and it's not complicated to see. You look on it, and you can see very clearly, oops, I'm above some line. Also, an alert will come to whoever the manager of the facility and say, hey, so-and-so's mice in room X are above range and hearing, you know, call facilities guys or call Dr. Turner to get him down here and help us figure out what's going on. So so it's, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. And it collects data in real time on an ongoing basis. So we can generate reports for researchers who may have questions about strange data points, right? We can create reports for, I don't know, elect site visitors. We can print reports for ourselves just to kind of review uh, the status status of the facility, even from an operational perspective. Hey, you know, it's always noisy in room X, right? Let's go in there and do a retraining. So to me, I mean, really, this to me is something I think should be a requirement for every vibarium. We, everybody should be using one of these. It's the only way that we can actually identify all of these extrinsic factors. And we get to do it with this instrument all in one place. So I'm a big fan. I love it. Well, thanks. I actually am really excited about it because I, I think it is a game changer for how we take care of our animals and how we understand their experiences. And you, you alluded to this, and I think it's, it's worth repeating that at the end of the day, reproducibility in our science and animal welfare are the same thing. Um, it is not an either or. The goal of this instrument is to improve animal welfare and study reproducibility, uh, and we see them as the same thing. Yes. And that's the raw truth about extrinsic factors like light, temperature, humidity, 
Noise and Vibration from Dr. Jeremy Turner. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Turner. I've appreciated having you, and I'm sure that all of our listeners have learned a lot. Thank you for the invite. It's been a great conversation. So how much of this reproducibility crisis, or rather this reproducibility waste, is due to stress in our research animals from environmental factors that we don't track? Well, it's time to find out. We have an obligation to our animals and our patients to get this right. If we can do better, we must. And we learned today that we can do better. So we must. If you're enjoying our discussions on Get Real, then I need your help to keep it rolling. Please become a monthly supporter. Go to getrealpodcast.info, click the support link in the upper right-hand corner, and commit to $10, $15, or $20 a month. Your commitment to me will help me keep my commitment to you. Let's continue to learn together so we can shape our biomedical future together. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I'm glad you could join us today. Tune in next month for a discussion about what we should be checking inside our animals to support reproducible science. Enjoy the holidays, everyone. We'll talk soon.